and welcome to another episode of Pakistan Me. I am a bit of a history buff and so personally I enjoy reading a lot about what happened in previous civilizations, how did they rise, how did they fall, what led to certain developments occurring particularly in the Muslim world. And I've always wondered about this age-old notion that we've been taught growing up about the unity of the ummah and whether or not the the Muslim civilization progressed when the ummah was unified. From my own historical readings, that does not seem to be true, and that's a myth that has taken hold, uh, particularly in countries like Pakistan. Um, in today's episode, we're going to be discussing how and why Muslim civilization rose in the early 8th, 9th, and 10th, and 11th centuries, and what led to its decline since then. Um, was it colonization? Was it something else? And to join me in talking about this complex topic, I invited Dr. Ahmad Kuru, who's a professor of political science at the San Diego State University. He's the author of a wonderful new book, which has won an award. It's called Islam, Authoritarianism and Underdevelopment, a Global and Historical Comparison. The Amazon link for this wonderful book is below in the description. I suggest you do find it and read it and take out the time to understand the points that he's trying to make. But in this conversation, we talked a lot about this idea of this ummah or the ulama state alliance and the orthodoxy that really took hold in the Muslim world in the 11th century and continues to dominate Muslim majority countries to this day. Um, this was a fascinating discussion. I think you will enjoy it. Um, and so I thank you for taking out the time to listen to, to this discussion. And I thank Dr. Kuru for this wonderful piece of work that he has produced. Um, so without further ado, here's Dr. Kuru. Professor Kuru, welcome to Pakistanomy. Thanks for having me. I want to start with a quote from your fantastic book, Islam, Authoritarianism and Underdevelopment, a global and historical comparison, which I found personally really fascinating. One of the quotes from this book that stuck out to me was that you go on to say, quote, this political decentralization did not hinder intellectual or economic progress. On the contrary, the existence of multiple political entities and the balance of power between them contributed to intellectual and economic flourishing. You're clearly talking about the early Islamic era where people in Pakistan or people I've interacted with even in the United States who are Muslim often say that, well, you know, the Muslim civilization progressed when it was united. And you're in fact arguing that there was actually a lot of decentralization, a lot of competing interests. And in fact, it was this decentralization that led to the flourishing of the civilization. I want you to share a bit about like, in your view, what were the drivers of this early Islamic era where you saw profound uh, progress, both intellectual and economic made in the Muslim world? Thank you for this excellent question. And it really is relevant to understand the ideological debates today in the Muslim world. As you rightly point out, many Muslims or different political groups and parties emphasized centralization. In Turkey, there has been a debate about presidential system and many right-wing politicians emphasize that a strong leader with less bureaucratic control will be way more efficient and effective. But in the book, I argue the opposite. And this is not my ideological or normative view, but this is what I learned from Muslim history. That's what I observe. That's the reality especially between 945 
mid 10th century and 1050 mid 11th century. 100 years of decentralization helped Muslims develop economically, have better urban life and produce many polymaths, which means philosophers with multiple scientific contributions. So this is very important for me, someone who grew up in Turkey by learning the Ottoman history and discussing the relevance of Ottoman history for today. Because for Ottomans, centralization was very important. Of course, we are not talk talking about a modern state level centralization. Ottomans was an empire of between 14th and 20th century, but under those conditions, they tried to centralize things but they were unable to produce pro philosophers or a vibrant merchant class that existed in early Islamic century, many of us call the golden era, which cover a long period from eight to 12th century, but especially nine to 11th century. And at the core of this nine to 11th century was a long era of decentralization, diversity, multiple opinions and con competition between them. So why did I refer to 945 to 1050 or around mid 11th century? Because the Abbasi empire was centrally powerful, militarily, politically, between around 750 to 945, two centuries. Those two centuries, were also productive. But toward uh, the second part of the two centuries, decentralization began because these things are process. They are not overnight rupture change. And in the uh, between mid 9th and mid 10th century, Central Asia started to become more and more independent from Baghdad certain level of regional diversification began. But especially when in 945, the Buyids, an Iranian Shia military force, captured the power and controlled Baghdad and most Iraq and partial Iran, there appear an enormous level of decentralization. You have the Abbasi Caliph in Baghdad with almost a symbolic relevancy, Buyids, Shia, and then throughout the Middle East and North Africa, Sunnis and Shias constitute important proportions of major cities like Damascus and Baghdad, and many Shia forces control such places as Syria, ruled by Hamdanis, a Shia dynasty, and Buyids, as I said, Iraq and Iran, Karmatis, a very radical group with very interesting socialist type ideas, ruling Bahrain and certain parts of Arabian Peninsula. Then Fatimis in Egypt and many other parts of North Africa. And meanwhile, we have Sunni dynasties in today Spain, the continuation of Umayyads. Then in Central Asia, Persianites, Sunni rule by Samanids, then followed by Turks, mostly Ghaznavids, Karanids, then came Selchuks. 
So you see a very dynamic political process, very vibrant intellectual environment was led by this political decentralization and someone who is obsessed with centralization may look at the map and say, oh, this is chaos. But this chaos was a creative chaos. Of course, we need an order within chaos, but we should not be obsessed with order. And in my book, <clears throat> I will try to emphasize that neither Islam nor Christianity is exceptional. Therefore, we can compare Muslim and Christian or Muslim and Western cases. This is, in fact, what I did in my first book, Secularism and State Policies Toward Religion, the United States, France, and Turkey. Ten years ago, it was published also by Cambridge. And I was criticized at that time by both Muslims and non-Muslims for comparing Muslim majority Turkey with non-Muslim majority France and the US. But I think religion, politics are universal phenomena that can be analyzed with standard variables. And re returning to your question, decentralization helped not only Muslim golden era, but it also helped Western European progress because Charles V, the Habsburg emperor in the 16th century, controlling Spain, Germany, and half of Europe today, tried to dominate entire Europe. But he failed because of the Dutch rebellion, because of the British opposition, because of the reformation gaining ground in many parts of Germany and various other reasons, and also the challenge of friends, he failed. But it, the, he, it was very good thing for Europe. Otherwise, if Charles V, the Habsburgs, control, dominate entire Europe in the 16th century, they would crush reformation. They would establish a Catholic hegemony based on the alliance between the Catholic clergy and the Habsburg monarchy. And they will really prevent the scientific and economic dynamism of Europe. And that's good for Europeans that he failed. And it was good for Muslims to have certain level of decentralization in their golden era, particularly between 9 and 11 centuries. So one of the other interesting changes that then occurred moving on from the 11th century that I would like you to describe a bit as well was that you had this merchant class that was funding or supporting the ulama and funding and promoting this intellectual discourse that was ongoing, right? The worldview was much broader cosmopolitan in nature because of the fact that these merchants traveled all over the world and traded. And so the type of discourse they were engaging in or patronizing was very cosmopolitan in nature. But then that began to change. And what you describe is that this orthodoxy that until then did not exist in the Muslim world, the same way it existed in Christianity, for example, um, began to emerge in the Muslim world. And that's where we start seeing some of the decline and the order being imposed or centralization being imposed in terms of what people could talk about and think about. Um, how much of that then began to impact, obviously, as you said, that it wasn't 
you know, a rupture. It was a process that began. And so where do we start thinking about, uh, or where should we start thinking about the beginning of the decline intellectually in terms of what happened in the Muslim world in the 11th century onwards? Thank you. So very good question again, and I want to emphasize two points. One, when we discuss the problems in the Muslim world today, there is the debate about westernization and some Muslims really defend the idea of totally embracing Western ideas, concepts, institutions, assuming that Muslims didn't have their own original sources for reform. And others blame them for being the puppets of the West or being alienated or being Orientalists. And in my book, I tried to show that Muslims had a brilliant civilization, very inspiring origin until the mid-11th century in terms of economic diversity and dynamism, economic, in terms of intellectual progress and pro productivity. And when I say mid-11th century, the beginning of the problems, some who really liked the Ottoman Empire became very upset. And they say, what about the Ottoman golden era? And well, I would, sorry to interrupt, but I would yeah, also say a lot of people from the subcontinent will say, well, what about the Mughal Empire? It was the richest exactly. in the world at one point. Definitely, you're right. And then in Iran, some may say, what about Safavids? Because these three empires, Ottoman, Safavi, and Mughal, they rule vast geography. They were rich and they were militarily powerful. <clears throat> Excuse me. But they never really establish the intellectual dynamism, scientific development of the early Muslims. These three empires had an intellectual stagnation. For example, I criticize Ottoman Empire for taking the printing press 280 years after Gutenberg in Western Europe and for printing much less books than Western Europeans did. And I have the data in my book in terms of numbers, for example, in the 18th century in Ottoman printing presses, only 50,000 books were printed. In the same century in Western Europe, or maybe the entire Europe, 1 billion books were printed. So there's a big gap. But Ottomans were better and quicker than Iranians and Indians, Muslims, adoption of printing press in Cairo, in Tehran, in Delhi, were even later than Istanbul. So therefore, intellectual progress is a different thing. And you see the consequences, negative consequences in terms of literacy rate. So I am not a historian, I am a political scientist. And I try to diagnose problems today and try to produce solutions. And we have today in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, in Egypt, in Turkey, a literacy problem. There's a big literacy rate between Muslim majority countries and the Western countries. Even the average word literacy rate is higher than Muslim word literacy rate. And when I look at the source, I go to history and I find that in the Ottoman Empire around 1800, the average literacy was 1%, whereas in Western Europe, it was 31%. So the gap was historical. And I tried to understand why it was 
that, like that. Then I realized that the Ottomans didn't get the printing press for about three centuries, although they were ahead of other Muslims that's still very late. And I tried to understand and I asked the question, if printing press was very much well known in Europe at the time of Farabi, Ibn Sina, Biruni, Al-Harazmi, Ibn Haysam, would they be indifferent? Would they have been really in stagnation and apathy toward this technology? The answer is definitely no. Because in the mid-8th century, Muslims learned paper from Chinese. Immediately, they started to produce it. Immediately, in 50 years, all over the Muslim world, especially Baghdad, you have many paper-making factories, Muslim producing books, and they establish libraries in Baghdad, in Cairo, in Cordoba, with hundreds of thousands of books. And it took Europeans five centuries to start producing paper. So how come we shift the roles? How come Muslims who were ahead of Europeans on many grounds became so late, late responsive, in stagnation, indifferent to technological advance? Can Which, you imagine? By the way, at a time when the empires ruling them were some of the biggest and richest. So it wasn't yes. like the money to invest in. No, all of it is not money. It is not power. It's not colonization. There was no European colonization of Turkey, subcontinent, Iran, Egypt. There is no foreigners to blame. Therefore, I compare this to the 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18th century Muslim world, really undermining philosophy, science, and intellectual life with the early Muslims, 9, 10, 11, even 8 and 12 centuries, picking up technology, picking up ideas, using them very effectively. What change? What is the difference? So, one, is this political chaos. Some says foreigners, some says internal chaos. But we already discussed with you, it's not political chaos. Decentralization was even better or at least good. So then, returning to your second question, I look at the class relations, the relations between four classes. The political authority, maybe a king, maybe a caliph, maybe a sultan, whatever the name, one single ruler, or a military oligarchy, as we have in the Mamluks, a group of oligarchs, or in the Ottoman case, Sultan plus the Janissaries. The second class is the clergy. Ruhban, mullahs, ulamas. So in Shia, we have a clear clergy established. And in Iran today, you know who the Rouhani leader, the supreme leader is. In Sunni Islam, the Sunnis is in a perpetual denial. They say, no, there is no clergy in Islam. But who are ulama? Islamic scholars. But they define what religion is. They define who is an apostate. They define what is lawful, what is not. So what else can be a clergy? This is exactly what clergy is functioning like that. Mm-hmm. They even have in Turkey and elsewhere a specific dress code. 
the, representing their class. So this is the second class. The third class is the merchants, the bourgeoisie, the economic entrepreneurs who had the private land, private funding, private corporations in early Islamic history. Then the fourth group, I call them scholars. So this is a vast group. Interestingly, include some you may call clergy, like Abu Hanifa, but they were different from typical ulama of post 11th century because they put a distance between themselves and the state. And they were not a spiritual group isolated from social life. No, these religious scholars like Abu Hanifa, like Ibn Hanbal, they were within the social life. They were being funded by commerce. Abu Hanifa was a silk merchant. Ahmed Ibn Hanbal worked once in a textile sector. So they were part of normal life. They, and then they do commerce. They, they, and according to a modern analysis of 3,900 Islamic scholars, ulema, from 8th to mid 11th century, 91% of ulema were funded privately. Them or their families mostly were funded by commerce, but they had various jobs, <clears throat> being a barber, porter, carrying items, or working manually. Only 9% of this 3,900 work paid by the state as a judge or in other official positions. So then, returning to your question, these four classes of politics, political authority, clergy, merchants, and scholars. Scholars include both independent Islamic scholars or philosophers like Farabi, Ibn Sina, Harazmi, and others. And in the early Islamic history, there was a balance of power between the four. Each has some autonomy. And especially the scholars, the independent scholars, maybe religious or secular, Islamic or more philosophical, Greek philosophical, they were supported by the merchants. Therefore, the merchant class and the intellectual class really were the engines of Muslim civilization. They were the motors of Islamic civilization. But things change. It was again a process, mid 11th century. The state started to control economy. The state became more military based in the Ghaznavids, in the Selchuks, later AUBs, Memluks, Ottomans, Safavi Mughal, an army-based state which controlled the land by the institution we call Iqta in Arabic and Timar in Turkish. And they marginalized private landowners and marginalized private merchants control even certain commercial activities. And meanwhile, this state marginalized independent scholars. They directly attack philosophers by infidels, apostate. Mahmoud there were inquisitions, right? Inquisitions, inquisitions began. Uh, Mahmoud the Ghaznavi, for example, attacks some Mutazile, 
Muslim rationalist philosophers. And then they didn't attack Islamic scholars, but they embed them into the system by establishing madrasas in the Seljuk Empire called the Nizamiya madrasas. Therefore, what you have here after the mid 11th century, gradually from east to west, from Central Asia, Iran, Iraq, later Syria, Egypt, then Anatolia Balkans, this model of ulema state alliance, which did not exist in that way before, emerged in mid 11th century, spread 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, became established hegemony. It marginalized Muslim merchants. It marginalized independent scholars and ulama and state control economic life, control intellectual life. That's why we did not have printing press because in Europe, merchant class understood the importance of printing press. Economic entrepreneurs were behind it. Benedict Anderson in his famous book, Imagined Communities, mentioned print capitalism that the bourgeoisie promoted printing press. Although it was invented in China, China at that time was like the Muslim world, undermining the merchants. Therefore, they didn't have flourishing of printing press or book publication. Similarly, the case in the Ottoman and other Muslim empires, the lack of organized and powerful merchant class make printing and other issues irrelevant. They only focus military. Mughal, Safavi and Ottoman focus on gunpowder. And that's how we move from a golden era, dynamic, based on intellectuals and merchants, to intellectually stagnant ulema state alliance, which left us a legacy today. And this is the process you mentioned in your question. And that's fascinating. And as you were describing the four sort of pillars of society and how they had balance of power within them, I was thinking of the modern system of checks and balances, right? And that exists and that provides the pillars of the state that act as a check on each other to make sure one does not usurp power on the other. And in a way, in the modern era, you know, skipping to skipping ahead, that that continues to be an issue in the Muslim world, right? That that dynamism is not there for various reasons, but primarily because there is political instability and you continue to see people yearn for this central authority that will, that in many ways, particularly in a place like Pakistan, has been a continuation of the orthodoxy, right? Which is the Mullah military alliance that has emerged um, and that people are still trying to combat. Um, I want to touch base on a couple of things that that you mentioned in your book that were super interesting to me, at least. One was that this idea that, you know, we, the dynamism that we saw in the past and people yearn for the dynamism, you write in your book that the most eminent philosophers of early Islamic history would actually experience um, accusations of being apostates if they were to live in Muslim countries today. Um, it's explain why that would have been the case. Like how, how is it possible that if, you know, people who look at these philosophers with such um, respect, if you were to bring them fast forward into the 21st century, let's say Pakistan, Indonesia or Turkey, why, why would they be persecuted? Thanks for the question, which emphasizes an inconsistency 
in the Muslim world today because <clears throat> whenever people are asked about scientific contribution, they refer to Ibn Sina and Farabi in a proud manner, saying that we had major thinkers. But then when it comes to the issue of faith, they say, oh, these are kafir, kuffar, and they go to hell. So how come you embrace them, you are proud of them, at the same time, you undermine them religiously? What is the reason? And also it is even more puzzling because Ibn Sina was the inventor of important religious terminologies about our faith. In the Turkish, for example, in even religious textbooks in schools, we define God, Allah, as wajibul wujud. So this wajibul wujud means the one whose existence is obligatory. Without him, there will be no existence. This, his wujud, therefore, is wajib, should be. The, the, it is Ibn Sinan's term. And that is his explanation. Mm. So you teach his way of explaining God in your madrasas, in your schools, and still blame him as kafir. And this really limits our appreciation of intellectuals. Always a suspicion. Oh, he's an intellectual, but is he a good Muslim? Maybe he's a kafir. But we never question the classical mullahs, whether they are really good Muslim, whether they are sincere, whether they are still or not, whether they are lie or not even whether they really believe or not, because we don't know. You can never know whether someone really believe or not. And talking about this, I think there are hadiths discouraging to say someone kafir, kuffar. And historically, it was not a legal issue. Before mid-11th century, there were many debates. People were accusing each other kafir, but it never reached to the level of executing them punishing by that. It was a daily or political debate and struggle and accusation, normal so, human be behavior. Yeah. So you, you're saying that there were no blasphemy laws and blasphemy cases the way we experienced Not that systematically, before. no, definitely. It wasn't that systematically. There was ad hoc and debates and arguments, counter-arguments. Remember, for example, you mentioned the Inquisition. Interestingly, the Inquisition was perpetrated by rationalists. The Abbasi Caliph, Mamun, then the two successor Caliphs, three of them imposed the Inquisition in order to enforce their rationalist Mutazila idea that the Quran was created a creation by God, not an eternal word of God, sacred, holy, but it was something created at a certain period of time. So they impose it in Inquisition, Mihna, and Ahmed bin Hanbal, Ahmed bin Hanbal refused, and about a hundred scholars and bureaucrats and top-level elite people were investigated. Many of them accepted the idea to save their life. Some, like Hanbal, refused and sentenced to death. So, but they didn't execute, they couldn't execute Ibn Hanbal. The new caliph, Mutawakkil, came to power, totally removed this inquisition. 
even appreciate and support Hanbalis, and Hanbalis somehow took revenge in Baghdad by attacking Mutazile, etc. But you see, it is back and forth, struggle, argument, counter-argument. And that's the worst rationalist thing. It was a major misdeed, sentence and Ibn Hanbal to death, but it was an exception that proved the rule. It was not a common thing and it backfired. The society was dynamic. The Mamun and Abbasi Caliph failed to dominate religion. That's the Muslim world in the eighth and ninth centuries. Abu Hanifa was offered to be judged by Abbasi Caliph. He refused. Then he put in prison and poison to death. But his model was taken very seriously by other Muslim scholars. And four leaders of Muslim Masab, Abu Hanifa, Imam Shafi, Malik, Hanbal, they refused to obey the state, be state servant. And Shia Jafar Sadiq refused to obey the state. And their distance has an origin from Karbala because the Umayyad dynasty was established by persecuting the Prophet's grandsons and family members. This created a huge disillusion in the eyes of many Muslims, not Shias per se, but many Sunnis regarded to see Umayyad caliphs as secular politicians. One exception that again proves the rule was Umar ibn Abdulaziz, who ruled only two years, a pious caliph, appreciated by pious people, recordedly he was poisoned by other members of Umayyad. And Muawiyah, the founder of Umayyad dynasty, was the first in Islamic history who had bodyguards, who had a throne, who had a crown, and who had Roman imperial sig signals and symbols of monarchical power. The Prophet and four caliphs were charismatic personal authorities, exceptional and never be repeated again. Then Umayyas knew that they established a secular order and Umayyah and Abbasi leaders therefore failed to establish a religious authority. Islamic scholars had the religious authority. They mostly put a distance. Mihna, the Inquisition, was an exception. And it was good. The, or everything, intentionally or unintentional consequence, contributed to some way to the golden era and dynamism of it until the mid-11th century. In the mid-11th century, major scholars made major mistakes. One was Al-Mawardi. Mawardi wrote the book Al-Ahkam al-Sultaniyya, the principle of governance. It was commissioned by the Abbasi Caliph. Because as I said, in the mid-11th century, Abbasi Caliph, two of them ruled 50 years as caliphs. One was Qadir, and then the other, his son, Qaim. Qadir and Qaim knew that they were like popes in Vatican today, anachronistically, mm. you can compare. They hate to see Buyids in Baghdad under Shia control and many Shia dynasties, and especially Fatimis in Egypt. And they tried to unify Sunni ulema, Sunni masses, Sunni military commanders. And therefore, Qadir declared a creed 
It's called the Qadri Creed. It's a declaration of Sunni orthodoxy. And he declared, Mu'tazila, who said, Quran is the creation of God, infidels, apostate to be killed. And then he declared, those who criticize Aisha, certain Shias, maybe all of them, as not Muslim. He declared those who do not pray five times a day, not Muslim, and punishable by that. He did not have the authority to impose by force in Baghdad, but he asked Turkish sultans in Central Asia, and Ghaznavi Mahmud, Mahmud the Ghaznid, accepted the call, tried to follow certain parts of this creed as attacking Mu'tazila, etc. Then Qadim, Qadir's son, repeated the same declaration. And when Selçuk's finally came, Baghdad established a Sunni rule, Qadir's legacy and Qaim's hope was succeeded. They finally achieved to see a Sunni rule. And that's the first time systematically apostasy became the center of Muslim thought, Muslim political life. Mm. Of course, it was not imposed everywhere, but that's the beginning of a very negative legacy. And unfortunately, Ghazali, who is a genius, for some people, he is the second most important Muslim figure after the Prophet. Very brilliant scholar, wrote two pages as a conclusion of his book, Tahafatul Falasafa, the inconsistencies of philosophers. And he asked a hypothetical question Are the philosophers kafir, they are apostate, punishable by death? Then he answered himself. Yes, for three reasons that the philosophers believe in eternity of word. Word is eternal. They believe that resurrection is spiritual, not physical. They believe that God's knowledge is limited by major things. God is not interested in minor, small things. So for three things, philosophers and their followers are infidels, punishable by that. And... In his own autobiography and several other books, he singled out Farabi and Ibn Sina as non-Muslims, apostate for these ideas. It was tragic. It was very negative thing because Ghazali, as you know, is very influential in Turkey and elsewhere. Ihya Ulimiddin and many others of his book shaped people's understanding of Islam. And that's how apostasy, which has no basis in the Quran or killing apostate, which has no basis in the Quran, became something established by the works of Al-Qadir, Al-Qaim, and they, their caliphate was supported by Mawardi on, by his book on caliphate. Then later, 30 years or so later, Ghazali wrote the famous the two infamous pages to declare philosophers uh, apostate to be killed. That's how this idea was established. And in the Quran, you know, I wrote an article discussing the blasphemy and apostasy laws and where I cited many sources emphasizing that there is no such thing of killing apostate in the Quran. There is only once 
hadith and many hadith experts criticize the hadith about that. And in the Quran, the God orders Muslims to do the following. And I cite specific verses in my article. If you hear that the infidels, non-believers, mock the Quran, make fun of Allah verses, leave the conversation and do not join them again until they change the topic. So this is the verse, but radicals argue that some very some verses they call sword verses, although the word sword is not also in the Quran. The single verse they argue abrogated 140 or so verses in the Quran about peace, about coexistence, about patience, about forgiveness. So how come you neglect 140 verses in the Quran? in order to justify your radical position and views? This is the questions Muslim really should ask. And, and I think it, it, it's a fascinating topic. I was listening to another podcast by my friend who was talking to a researcher, an academic and an animator. He's a brilliant guy called Arafat Mazar. And he was talking about how in Pakistan, when the blasphemy laws were passed, um, he did a lot of research and found that the debate was misconstrued. At times, people lied through their teeth in the way they translated the works of Imam Humble and others on this topic. And so when this guy started researching, he would go and show people the original Arabic and ask them to translate and then watch the video of the scholar who was claiming to translate the Arabic and turned out that he was actually falsifying the words of the Imam, which was, you know, there's a lot of things people need to ask and research. I want to jump to the modern era because that was a question I want our listeners to understand from me, which was that, you know, you look at modern Muslim countries, particularly, let's say, Turkey and Egypt, Pakistan doesn't really fit into this idea, even though Pakistanis claim that the founding father wanted it to be secular. But in 1948, Pakistan had the objective resolution, which cemented the role of Islam in the state. But Turkey and Egypt um, did try their experiments with secularism and tried to break this military ulama orthodoxy that had emerged centuries ago. Um, in your view, why has that experiment largely failed? Like, why have these societies not been able to um, reinvigorate themselves and become dynamic the way they, you know, the expectation was that secularism would help become or bring about dynamism once again? That's, again, a very good question. Thank you. And it's really wrapped certain things we already talked because the audience, uh, they may think that I am suggesting any version of Kemalism, but I am not, because as you rightly emphasize, there were reformist movements, some bottom up, but many top down. From the Tanzimat in Ottoman Empire to Muhammad Ali Pasha reforms in Egypt, from Namik Kemal as a thinker in Istanbul to Muhammad Abduh in Cairo, then and many thinkers like Iqbal and uh, Khan in India, today's subcontinent, they try to reform. One reason they failed is the resistance from Mullahs, Ulemas, classical ad hominem attacks, because 
it starts with the philosophers saying that these are immoral people, they are not good Muslim, don't follow them, their ideas are totally wrong. Same 19, 20, 21st century forms receive ad hominem attacks, personal lynching from ulamas, from Islamists, even from Sufi sheikhs who really are anti-intellectual. But the reformists also had problems because they didn't really produce theoretically deep, consistent works sufficiently. There, were, there are books, but it's not enough. Even Fazlur Rahman, when he was asked what is the main book on reforming Islam, he referred to Iqbal's book. But Iqbal's book uh, is a combination of several German philosophers and very interesting book, but it's not enough to really and, and, establish. And sorry to interject again, but even beyond those lectures and readings, Iqbal himself, his philosophy is very problematic because he then also tried to use religion to deflect from some of the criticism that he was getting. So if you dive deep into him as well, it's very complex and, and at times it, it doesn't work well as a governing work of philosophy. His you, you are right. It's not a, yes, he's a poet and activist and also definitely, but even if it was really helpful and good, one person, one book is not enough. It should be hundreds of them like European Enlightenment has European Enlightenment has hundreds of philosophers and books. So this is the intellectual bottom-up part. The top-down part was more problematic. And now directly answering your question, Atatürk in Turkey, Cemal Abdul Nasser in Egypt, and many reformist leaders throughout the Muslim world were military leaders they were almost equally anti-intellectual and anti-bourgeoisie. They want state control over economic life and intellectual life because they see bourgeoisie as balancing, challenging, controlling power, alternative to state bureaucracy. And they see intellectuals untrustworthy, suspicious, you may question government, you may provide questions that really uh, challenge the top-down modernization project. That's why Atatürk, Jamal Abdel Nasser, as military leaders, tried to impose a top-down modernization in, with authoritarian means. Although they marginalize ulema, they fill the vacuum by bureaucrats, not by intellectual and merchant classes. Moreover, recently, at least in the last 50 years, even these military regimes pretend to be secular, established new versions of ulema state alliances in order to justify their authoritarian regimes, in order to appeal conservative Muslim masses. For example, in Turkey, the Diyanet it has been controlling over 100,000 mosques. And the government is paying all the salaries of imams in mosques. And in exchange, the government pro providing a standard text to be recited on Friday sermons on, in mosques. So even in Turkey, not in 
Tayyip Erdoğan's new Islamist populist regime. Before him, there was a form of ulema state alliance because of this Diyanet, a government agency controlling mosques. And in Egypt, Jamal Abdel Nasser and Enver Sadat tried to use LSR, the Mufti of Egypt, another ulema, to balance Ikhwan, Muslim brothers. But eventually the ulama became more and more powerful. And then when there was an election in Egypt, the Mufti of Egypt was able to say a woman can never be the president, issue a fatwa. So is this the secular Egypt's legacy to see the ulama declaring that women can never be the leader? It was a result of the opportunistic attempt of state leaders to use ulema. But in my book, let me conclude by saying that I emphasize that the relationship is always bilateral. It's a two-way system. The state can try to dominate and use ulema, but ulema always find a way of making itself very influential, using education, using, of course, religion, using the public discourse. Even in the Ottoman Empire, you may assume that the Sultan is omnipowerful, ulema is under him. No. Ulema issue fatwas in many cases to replace the Sultan. When Janissaries were replacing Sultan with a new one, always received the fatwa, the opinion from the ulema. So therefore, the reformist attempts had problems bottom up, but top down, the main problem they were done by military class in an authoritarian way. And I think just to really quickly to add another piece of wrinkle into this whole transition that was being attempted and is still being attempted was the role of the petrodollars and the role of the Wahhabis and the monarchical ulama alliance that emerged in, let's say, Saudi Arabia that also, at least in Pakistan, for example, and Indonesia to an extent now, um, influence the role of a new type of clergy emerging that took did not uh, derive its power from rulers within the country but actually from money flowing in from abroad for whatever reason and i think we continue to deal with that impact particularly in places like pakistan and afghanistan to this day um let I me want tell to, you one yeah. thing about this because i know your interest in economics and this economic aspect is very important because neither ulama nor state is a productive class. They always need an external funding. Historically, the rent or the external funding coming from land. So the state allocating land to its bureaucrats by Iqtar Timar system, the ulama, the mullahs receiving money from lands endowed, wakuf lands for madrasas and other salaries. Today, as you rightly point out, it is oil. 60% of worst oil reserves are in Muslim majority countries. And in my book, I have the table showing that in the world, there are 28 oil dependent countries where the government receive 40% or even more of its budget from directly oil. And 21 out of 28 countries in the world are Muslim majority. So normally Muslims constitute a quarter of all countries, but they constitute three quarters of 
oil-based rentier states. It's because of geological factor, oil happened to exist, but also oil dominates them easily because of the historical legacy of socioeconomic underdevelopment. Oil couldn't dominate Norway, for example. Norway is also very oil rich. But when oil production began, Norway was economically more developed than many Arab countries. And it had already a constitution democratically designed to a certain extent around 1816. So a century before oil, they had the constitution. So since the Muslims didn't establish political and economic institutions, they were dominated by oil, hindered democracy, funded ulema state alliance, especially in like countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, where is the money coming to hundreds of thousands yeah. of mullahs, oil. They spread Wahhabi ideas by using oil money. And even in countries like Turkey, oil poor, the government still find a way of producing rent. That's why Erdogan regime is selling Istanbul piece by piece, turning Istanbul's parks and areas into rent for construction projects. Yeah, and I think um, you know your point about unproductive classes is 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 reminded me of this documentary I was watching about this mullah from the Red Mosque in Islamabad, and there was riots there, and a bunch of students died. This was when Musharraf was ruling the country, and he was giving this interview years after this happened, and he's sitting there and he's talking about Islamic revolution, and I started laughing. I was watching it with my father. Um, it's a fun story that I wanted to repeat here was, he was, my father was like, why are you laughing? I'm like, I'm laughing because here's this mullah sitting talking about an Islamic revolution. He has a laptop in front of him, which is Dell, American technology made in China. He has an AK-47 behind him, Russian technology. Um, he is wearing shoes that are probably made in China or somewhere else because Pakistan doesn't make those shoes anymore. And he's talking about an Islamic revolution. I'm like, how is this? What kind of revolution will this be when you're wholly dependent on the productive assets provided to you from by others um, to lead change, right? Um, and the last question I had for you was, you know, based on your research, which is fascinating, the book is definitely worth reading for anyone listening. Um, how does the Muslim world then emerge from these long, dark ages that have crippled its intellectual and economic uh, pillars? Like what, what do you see as the opportunity, if any, here for this vibrant civilization which contributed so much to Western civilization, took stuff from the Greeks, translated it, which then made its way back into Western Europe? Like how do we emerge from, from this decline once more? So those who read my book is a depressive and pessimistic way are wrong. I really think that it is, or at least I hope it will be seen as an optimistic book because if Muslims had an early achievements, then they can repeat it. They did and they can repeat it. They may have a renaissance going back to their original sources, Abu Hanifa and others, how they tried to put a distance with the state authority. Even Ghazali himself regretted at the age of 40 
and went to the mausoleum of Abraham, Prophet Abraham, and took an oath that he would never receive money from the state and never serve the state again. So we have this legacy of competition, dynamism, toleration, freedom of thought to a certain extent. And this era is a source of inspiration. It's a source of pride. So Muslims produced the early version of dark room camera obscura, today's camera. They contributed to medicine, distinguishing certain viruses. They contributed philosophy and mathematics and the Arabic numbers they learned from India, then they developed and taught to Europe. So this is an inspiration. And, and really quickly, one example based on Microsoft economics, of that their currency was used in England, as you show in your book, which was fascinating. Yes, in the 8th century, Offa, the king of Offa in England, copied the Abbasi dinar. We written La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah with many mistakes they copied as if someone copying American dollar today. So that was the level of trust Muslim money, the prestige Abbasi Dinar had. And they produce many economic institutions and tools like check we use today in Persian check. And it was a Muslim innovation. So that's the hope for the future. And what we should do is that in social science, you know, there is always the debate between agents and structure. Structure, the general conditions may change. Oil money is maybe going away because of new technologies emerging, domestic consumption increasing, and physically it will be depleted. Therefore, oil rent maybe gone soon, weakening the ulema state alliance, that will be a possible structural change. But agents in human beings, we as individuals should do things and we should promote intellectual class and merchant class. And if you look at books on social science, analyzing Muslim problems after Ibn Haldun's Muqaddimah, there are very little and today many books written in english in the united states like my book i didn't write it in turkish in turkey i came to the state to write it in english here frederick Starr wrote a major book on, uh, titled lost enlightenment about the golden era in central asia and how it was lost and marshall hodson has three volumes, Venture of Islam, explaining many details about the transformation and process of the rise and fall of Muslim civilization to a certain extent. And Muslims should write such books, translated Arabic, Persian, Turkish. And I'm happy that my book is now being translated to Bosnian, Arabic, Persian, Indonesian, and hopefully Urdu. That is amazing. Hindi, yes. that's what I hope in the future. So that's how we can break the vicious circle by really producing ideas and goods, by really appreciating the merchants and intellectuals, by stop being anti-intellectual by stop blindly following political authorities, Sufi sheikhs, ulemas. It's fine, it is okay to follow a political or 
Sufi or ulama leader, as long as you are critical, as long as you keep your aql, your reason for yourself, as asked in the Quran by God, having contemplation rather than blind obedience. And that's the way for the Muslim world, looking back its origin and contemplating, using reasoning, observation, logic, in an understanding religion and science and their life and really promoting intellectuals and economic entrepreneurs. And I think one, one more thing that is an opportunity, not just for the Muslim civilization, but everywhere for everyone around the world is the internet and the profusion of technology, right? The fact that you can now sit the two of us on Zoom, have this discussion that can be shared with the rest of the world or People can talk to each other, not being controlled by the state. The state is trying to restrict the internet in many Muslim countries now, including Pakistan, but they see it as a threat, right? Because now you can have a new generation of people whose ideas or thinking about the world does not have to be dominated by what they heard growing up from the mullah or the teacher or the state curriculum that was given to them. And I think that, again, is an opportunity where if you can produce interesting content, with well re good research then you can expose a new generation to those things which previously 30 40 50 years ago was simply impossible just because of the restrictions um professor but again, it is it is sorry it's again <laughs> in st structure and agency you are absolutely right that internet providing a structural opportunity but as agents we should take advantage use it effectively absolutely. meaningfully Absolutely. And before I let you go, I'm mindful of time. Um, you mentioned some amazing books that folks should pick up and read. But before we end this discussion, any two or three books in addition to what you've written, which is a must read that you would recommend people pick up and pay attention to, to understand how and why Islamic civilization either declined or even looking forward, how can it, can it reemerge? Of course, let me mention those in my mind. So Ibn Rushd wrote a commentary on Plato's Republic. Those who are interested in political theory, this is a fascinating read because how Ibn Rushd, the 13th century Muslim philosopher slash alim, uh, interpreted Plato's Republic. This in, in English may be translated in Arabic because the Arabic origin was destroyed. Unfortunately, it's not extant mm -hmm. today. Another classic is Ibn Haldun's Muqaddimah to understand the, not only the, the dynamics of social life between nomads and urban people, but many aspects of Muslim history. And he has friendly criticisms of Sufism, and he has warnings about not to wait a Mahdi, and many interesting contributions in the pages of Ibn Haldun's Muqaddimah. And if we coming to more modern era, there is a uh, German historian, Adam Maz, and his books, The Renaissance of Islam, written in German, then now available in English too. Then the, uh, I would also recommend the autobiography of Ghazali to understand his era. It's a short and very interesting read. So classicals, Ghazali, Ibn Rushd, Ibn Haldun. More modern, Adem's Renaissance of Islam. Then Marshall Hosson, as I mentioned, three volumes 
Venture of Islam. And more recently on this topic, Frederick Starr, The Lost Enlightenment, about uh, Central Asian uh, scientific and philosophical rise and fall. Professor, thank you for taking out the time. This was a fantastic discussion, excellent work with the book, and I'm looking forward to more of your research and reading more about what's coming next. So thank you for your time and for your, for your brilliant research. Thank you. You are very kind, and it is my pleasure and honor to have the conversation with you.